But look, my first guest this morning is recognised as one of Ireland's greatest writers, dramatists and poets. Revered, revered for works as varied as Observe the Sons of Ulster marching towards the Somme. To someone who'll watch over me, to the Factory Girls, his new play Dinner with Groucho premieres at the Dublin Theatre Festival this month on September the 22nd. Frank McGuinness, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. So nice to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my privilege. Listen, your new play, Dinner with Groucho, as I said, it's going to premiere on the 22nd of this month. It's being put on by the Bespoke Theatre Company, Alison McKenna. Take us about this play, how it came about. It's a dinner date, really, with two giants of American cultural life. Uh, Groucho Marx and, and, and Thomas Stearns Elliot, um, who wasn't exactly known for his knockabout um, humour in the play, in the, uh, certainly in the plays, but in the poems. But it, of course, if you look at Eliot's whole career, you recognise that there is a magnificently absurd, indeed surreal streak of humour that goes through even the darkest and most deep of his poems. And uh, that makes him, I think, in a way kindred to the anarchic, surreal spirit of Groucho at his best in the Marx Brothers films. It turns out, I discovered to my great delight about 20 years ago, that they were ardent fans of each other. And indeed, it was Eliot who wrote a letter to Groucho um, asking for an autograph and a photograph. And Groucho responded very enthusiastically. I couldn't believe it, actually, because he was passionate about Eliot, passionate about Shakespeare. So he wanted to have a correspondence centred on the poetry and possibly a meeting to talk about Shakespeare. It did happen. When Groucho was in London, he went to visit an ailing Eliot. Groucho and his wife went to visit Eliot and his new wife, Valerie, um, and they had the dinner. I think it wasn't exactly... Um, a meeting of minds, actually. <laughs> Groucho was uh, too overawed and Elliot was too tired. So I didn't actually want to do um, a reconstruction. And I felt that from what you read around the, the, the dinner, um, their wives didn't get on and Groucho didn't get on with Valerie. And I've had enough of, you know, get the wife. I'm tired of that kind of carry yeah. on. So I wanted instead to concentrate on the potential, the imaginative potential of what would happen if they were let loose. And the only woman in the background who very much comes into the foreground yeah. is based on the magnificent Marguerite Dumont, who was the um, beautifully anarchic spirit that played with Groucho and the boys in, uh, in the yeah. Marx Brothers films. She, so she's in there with a wee touch of Margaret Rutherford because it's set in London. And basically, I just set out to um, enjoy myself. <laughs> I was just going to say, it looks like you had fun writing this. Well, I did, actually. It's been a long time in the gestation. I can't believe how long, but last year um, I was asked to do something for the gate um, about the virus, about uh, the, the COVID. And I did do the visiting hour for Stephen and Judith Roddy, Stephen Ray and Judith Roddy. And that was very much concentrated on a single place and a single issue, very much about a tragic, dark issue. Mm. And I looked at uh, Dinner with Groucho and thought, now here is my respite. Here <laughs> is my breakout. Here is my crack. And I went back to the play and really it, is, it has nothing to do with COVID and it has nothing to do with sickness. It's all about survival and all about joy and about yeah. magic and um, generally just, you know, two men meeting who uh, revere each other. But the reverence doesn't preclude heaven, um, a hooli, doesn't preclude heaven, you know, a better 
knocking it back and yeah. really enjoying each other. It's absolutely wonderful. It's great fun. I love your accent. Go back, Frank, do you mind? Bunkrana, tell me where you grew up, a little bit about your parents and your childhood. Well, Bunkrana is um, in Donegal. It's in Inishon. Um, and Inishon is, there are two parts of Donegal, Chirchon and Inishon, and they're very different from each other. Bunkrana is absolutely at the heart of Inishon. A good part of Derry is geographically in Inishon. So we were very much um, in the shadow of the big city, the big town, and there was always this um, ferocious rivalry between Bunkrana and Derry. You know, I have dared to write a couple of plays that are set in Derry, but by no stretch uh, of my own nerve would I claim to be from there. And if I did, I would be very <laughs> soon enlightened that I wasn't. Um, and, um, you know, we we had this uh, very powerful um, resonance that there was something untoward about where we were. It was not at peace it was a country divided and it was a place divided. Mm-hmm. So you were always looking over your shoulder. You're always on edge because you knew that anything could happen and anything could erupt. And then it did erupt in 1969 when I was just, when I was just through puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, Derry completely exploded and the war started, the civil war started. So we had all of that to contend with. But apart from that, we were living in this extraordinarily beautiful part of the world. Um, the natural beauty of the county, the natural beauty of the peninsula, and indeed Derry is a very beautiful city. People don't realise that, mm-hmm. but it is. Um, physically, it's extremely beautiful with the foil and the hills. Um, all of that was there as an accompaniment to this um, major upheaval. Um, and I really was defined, if you like, by where I was from for a long time. I had never spent a day, I never spent a night away from Bunkrana until I came to Dublin in 71. That was my first time ever sleeping outside of Donegal. Tell me about your mom and dad. What did your dad work at and what was your mom and dad? What my father like? was um, a bread man. Um, his father uh, did very well for himself. There, I've discovered from uh, a newspaper article, he, my grandfather also called Frank McGuinness. There's loads of Frank McGuinnesses in the family. <laughs> but my grandfather was one of the first men to fly in an aeroplane in Ireland. There was a Belfast engineer who constructed from bicycles, practically, <laughs> this plane. And, of course, my grandfather was uh, around Fawn, where uh, they lived. And um, he got a passenger ride on a plane around 1910. So I found this out, actually, and it was a great joy to me to find out that the, you know, the man that I never met him, actually. He died before I was born. Um, but he was on that plane. So that was where wow. my father's side of the family were. And he, he did very well for himself. He came over. The story is that he came over from Rathmullen, where him and my grandmother met. And he came with a, um, a box of heron and he sold them. And then he bought another box and another box. And finally, he ended up with, you know, quite a few lorries um, and trucks. And um, they had a bread business bread delivery business, and he had a wee huckster shop, which my aunt Kathleen used to own. Um, and they were, they did well. And my father got, my father man said he got the bread business. So he delivered bed, bread all through Inishowen. Um Again, strictly Inishowen. Derry was sitting there, but uh, you didn't cross the border with the bread. <laughs> that was a no-no. So, you know, you, the reality of the border was very strong there. But he was a bread man. Did you get on well with your dad? We got on as well as Irish men and their fathers get mm. on. Um, I think there was a lot of unspoken 
griefs and tensions. Um, he was full of aspiration for me and was very encouraging. Um, and he really rejoiced in anything that I might achieve. Um, but we were different men. We were radically different in our um, understanding of what the world was and radically different understanding of what men were and what women were. Um, but he was an exceptionally kind man. I know that now. I probably didn't appreciate that. And when I look back on it, our house was full of animals. And they loved him. They absolutely loved him. And I think back on that now, and it makes me want to cry, because I never really took on board what was the instinct of this man, what was the centre of this man, that animals adored him. Mm. I mean, he could tame, you know, the, it was mostly dogs, but mm. he could, the, the saddest and most unhappy dogs, he could bring them to peace. And you, you, you <laughs> used to see him, it's like Hager, the horrible the cartoon, but you used to see the bread van going up down the town street followed by three dogs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> his trusty steeds after him. But he did love animals. And, I mean, he really, really encouraged that in all of us, actually, that adoration of, of, um, of dogs especially. Tell me about your mom. My mother was uh, a blacksmith's daughter. Um, they had a forge at the Pine Lane where the, the, the matriarchy ruled. And she worked in a shirt factory, which was the, um, the common trade of, of women. Uh, women worked in Bunkrana. They went mm-hmm. out and worked even after they were married. Grandmothers usually minded the children, and that was the case with us as well. All my aunts worked. Um, and um, all my mother's sisters, they married Irish soldiers, um, so that was a, they were a, we were a big army family in that respect, actually. But they all worked in the shirt factory and were all exceptionally good at their jobs. They all did very highly skilled work. And um, my brother, sorry, my mother would have been uh, the third daughter. There were four altogether. And uh, she was the third of the line. They all had red hair. Every one of us had red hair. Um, my, they, my grandparents had about, I think there was nine children, only one of them had dark hair like my granny, and he died young, unfortunately. But the rest were all wow. flaming redheads and with tempers to match <laughs> the men and the woman. <laughs> a quiet house it was not, but it was a wonderfully vibrant and vital and uh, unpredictable setting. Um, and my mother was, I think, the reddest of the lot. I think it's fair to say that. But you got on well with your mum? I love to, maybe we all go for our mothers, actually, but my mother was, um, I loved the unpredictability. I loved the um, skill with which she could get her own way. <laughs> and I, I loved the inventiveness of um, her imagination to make sure that she got her own way. So uh, I was constantly presented with um, threats of the most pleasant order. I mean, when I read the lines about, I think it's Cleopatra, age cannot wither her, <clears throat> nor custom stayed her infinite variety. I had an instant translation for who that was. You know, yeah. the Cleopatra of the Pine Lane, Selena Donnell, you know. But she obviously, like your dad, they had great ambitions for you. Were you the first person in your family to go to UCD, to go to university, oh, to God, go to yes, third actually. level? I mean, we came from a very a very strong working-class background. My cousin Elizabeth um, got the leaf insert. She was the first. And she went to teach her training college in England. And then when I was going to secondary school, Donough O'Malley, the great Donough O'Malley, mm-hmm. brought in free education. And, you know, we forget, this was Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil implemented 
the revolution in Ireland in the 1960s, and it's hard to believe that now, but they were, <clears throat> they really were the Socialist Party at, in that sense. Um, and Donoghue O'Malley, who I revere, brought in this great change. Um, and I got a chance to go to um, a school outside Bunkran in a place called Carndonagh. And um, I would go there every morning for five years on a bus. Um, and we went to, um, <clears throat> shall we say, a place that I have no ambiguous feelings at all about, that I loathed, um, because it was an extremely cruel and very rough place. And, um, you know, we were taught by certain men who should never have been let near children because of their temper and their violence. But there were also good teachers there as well. Mm. And I was so determined to get something from secondary school education that I kept my head down and didn't tweet and didn't suffer. No, I I did suffer, Mm. but I didn't um, allow it to stop me. Their lack of encouragement, certain teachers' lack of encouragement was also a very big incentive to defy them. And I would love to think they did it, you know, to, to... to have the opposite effect, but they didn't. They say we're going out of their way to stop us from using what opportunities that were given. Because they were terrible snobs, some of these priests. A lot of them were dreadful snobs and certainly didn't want um, working class kids to have ambitions that would upset the order as things were. Um, but we got through it. We got through it. Did that fill you with rage that stayed within you, your treatment there? Oh, there was an, an inordinate amount of rage, actually. I mean, I was my mother's son. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't take it to injustice too well. But I recognised that rage would be self-defeating, even as a young fella. And now especially, I recognise that it's completely self-defeating. I look back on it and I can still shudder at memories from it, but I recognised that they didn't win and that uh, the good side of what Donoghue O'Malley was trying to do, that prevailed, not merely in the school, but in the country. Do you also think, Frank, now some time back, that maybe some people suspected you were gay even back then and that might have also led to cruel treatment? Well, I think the main suspect was myself. I mean, I kind of knew that I was not really cut out for, you know, um, marriage with five children. Um, or four cars, depending on, on your on your liking. I often think that's one of the blessings that I, I was not heterosexual. There are many blessings for not being heterosexual, but a complete lack of interest in cars was one of them, actually. <laughs> and then, of course, I went to see an exhibition once of, uh, of um, um, 1920s art and saw a car and fell madly in love with it. I couldn't buy it with it was a couple of million. So I, I would have had a very expensive taste in cars. But I recognised, dear God, if I were straight, I probably would have six children and six cars and prefer the cars. Uh, so I think God knew what he was doing when, you know, he shaped me the way he did. And was it difficult for you growing up in Bungranagay? I assume you didn't acknowledge it way back then. Well, I had interests that, you know, um, an observant eye would have uh, caught on to or would mm. have noticed very quickly. Um, but I, I don't want to make it sound as if it was, you know, hell on earth what mm. I went through. It wasn't easy um, and it was 
particularly difficult when uh, with largely other gay kids that give you the tough time. Mm. Um, the, of course, what they, what they were doing was to allay suspicions about themselves. That That's tough to remember, actually. But I also had fierce protectors, um, not merely in my own family, but among my own mates, actually. Uh, you know, I, I was very close to a couple of straight boys who um, knew bloody well what the hell the story was, but still stood stood by me. So um, they're dead now, unfortunately, but um, and I miss them immensely. But I, I didn't have as rough a time as other people did. Um, and I also, I mean, I was by no means, you know, Muhammad Ali, but, you know, I kind of could look after myself. And I remembered getting one bit of advice, which is, you know, in a fight, even if there's a lot of people there. And I pass this on to other um, uh, gay children out there. Just remember, if you deliver one ferocious blow at one of them in the crowd, they'll tend to leave you alone in the future. I mean, that's one way of looking after yourself. Just make sure you deliver the one blow, and preferably the gay one, um, because there'll always be one gay one and the, the gang is attacking you. Was it a joy to go to UCD? I mean, as you said earlier, it was the first time you'd been out of Bunkrana in your life when you went to Dublin. Did you enjoy UCD? It was a joy attended by terror. I really had not spent a night away from um, Bunkrana. And coming to Dublin, the size of Dublin, which made even Derry look minuscule, um, was extremely threatening. Um, Very, very uh, rough, really. Um, but again, we were lucky. I came with a friend um, from from school. We found digs in um, a place called Woodrow Place in Booterstown. In 1971, I came to Booterstown as a timid, terrified boy. And we found a wonderful landlady called Mrs. Rath, Rose Rath. And she looked after us. And we had Gleason's round the corner. And I wasn't drinking then. I was a young fella. But there was a, a little off-licence there. Um, and you could get sandwiches there. And Frank and Nora were in their youth then. Um, all the boys weren't born practically when I went there in 71. Um, but it was, uh, again, a shelter. There was a shelter there. And I loved college. I loved UCD. It had just moved to Belfield. And my God, it was a desolate place. Um, there was like one cafe presided over by a, a monstrous woman <laughs> called Alice who practically would beat the crap out of you if you didn't put back your cup. But um, I had a whole variety of people to meet, a whole mm-hmm. exciting variety of people to meet from all over the country, and not least from Dublin. Um, and I got access to um, to friendships that really I could never have predicted I would have, and from backgrounds that I would have never, ever come across in Bonkrana. And I discovered that um, we had one great sharing characteristic in 1971, and through the days of, and you see, nobody had any money. Like, even middle-class Dubliners had no money. We were bringing sandwiches in for our lunch, so were they. And, you know, I remember going with my two friends, Catherine and, 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 and Catherine, and we went to the, the bar. Uh, to the bar, and we would have one, one bottle of cider and three glasses of water, and we would divide the bottle of cider between the three of us. We didn't go so far as to ask for three straws. We, we had too much dignity, but that is how tight things were. And that was our weekly allowance of, you know, a beer, a bottle of cider between the three of us. And sometimes we had to bail each other out in that. So there was that level of, of you like, of deprivation. 
Now, we didn't know any better, so we didn't look at it as deprivation. But there certainly were severe restrictions on how you could enjoy yourself. I mean, you might be able to go to, to one movie a week um, and there was a free, not quite free, but like three and six tickets for the Abbey, for the matinee and for uh, the balcony that you could go to. And I would go to see everything in the Abbey in the 70s. I mean, I've got a, a mm. big knowledge of the, the great players from that time and the plays that were done then because it was one of the only things you could afford to go to. But it really was a tremendous festival of culture and a tremendous shock to the system of knowing people, new people. And, and then I loved the subject. I loved English. By a beautiful coincidence, serendipity even, my second guest later on today is a man called David Donoghue, a yes. senior diplomat. And your love of English was very influenced by his father. Tell us that story. Dennis Donoghue was the professor. I went to UCD to study French and history because I'd done well in them and the leave and search. And I, um, I suffered from a disadvantage in terms of French in that I never heard it spoken. We didn't have a language lab in Donegal, so I have a perfect bunk run of French accent. Um, <laughs> this presented problems in UCD. They tried, they tried to knock it out of me, um, but I'm afraid. They failed. No, any show one will out. Um, and then history, I suddenly discovered was not to my cup of tea. I, I was very in, interested by American history, but you couldn't specialise in it. I went, I tried a couple of lectures, and by great good fortune, it was Dennis Donahue's course on practical criticism. And he gave a lecture on a brilliant Shakespeare sonnet, The Expensive Spirit in a Waste of Shame, which is one of the, the poems of the language. And this man spoke for an hour. And even during it, I said, this is what I'm going to study. Wow. And at the end of it, I went to the office and I changed to English and French. And in my second year, I specialised in Old and Middle English and Modern English. Donahue had an astounding mind um, and a, an eloquence that was went beyond mere the rigours of rhetoric. He had a love for English, which was um, infectious. Uh, he was a terrifying presence. He was about seven foot five. <laughs> I mean, Goliath incarnate, terrifying. And you certainly didn't have a small talk with Dennis Donahue, but I was utterly possessed by his way of reading and his way of speaking. And uh, that is what I wanted to do. So, I mean, I have never met David since I think, mm. many, many years, but his, I know Emily, Emma. Yeah, um, but just... the Donahues have much to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's such a lovely story. And was it around that time as well that you felt you could be a writer? I know you sent an article off, didn't you, to David Marcus? Yes. Wasn't it? Yeah. I sent some poems, some drafts of poems to David. And um, to my bliss, he sent back a very short note saying, um, you can write. Send me more. Wow. And I revised, uh, my first time ever really revising poetry, and I sent them to him. And they were all about my grandfather and, my, and Donegal. Um, and my grandfather had died, and it was a traumatic event for me. Um, it was the first death, really. So I sent them to David, and David sent me back um, on the blue paper he used to send, very neatly typed, uh, the acceptance speech. And tell me, I mean, he was going to pay me £3.50. 
£3.50, which was a fortune. Because on the, the grant that we were living on, which was like, <laughs> forget the clipping to 10. <laughs> I mean, this was 10, you know. £3.50 <laughs> was um, a fair whack. It was like a week's wages. Um, and uh, I decided, being myself, I had to g- I would quickly get a... Um, a taste of the high life from writing poetry. <laughs> so there was a restaurant in Ranala. We went and we had steaks, myself and a mate, um, which was inconceivable that we would ever do it, but we blew it. Um, and, um, I, I thoroughly approve now. Looking back, I should have saved it, should have done this, but to hell with it. We had, yeah. the, we had the wine, we had a glass of wine and three steaks, and, and we paid three fifty for it. I think we gave a tip of 20 pence, which is too good for the <laughs> because the waiter looked down his nose and it's completely these two northern yahoos and eat north steak. Um, but uh, that was the beginning of it. And from then, I really expected that you, you would grow very rich and famous on poetry, on the earnest poetry. That doesn't happen, really, actually. <laughs> I think even Seamus, God love him, Seamus, he had to teach. Um, so, yeah, but at the time, I, it was my first feeling of you know, a surplus, an abundance of riches well, from writing a poem. And you still remember it so well. Was it the factory girls? We spoke about your mom earlier and all your aunts and how they worked, obviously, in the factory. Was the factory girls, did that establish you as a playwright? Yes, it was the first play. Um, and I had gone to an Arts Council workshop uh, in Galway that my friend Patrick Mason moderated. And he was very encouraging to to finish the play, to rewrite it. Again, um, he really, like David, he put his emphasis, if you're serious about writing, you must rewrite. Um, And there's no way out of that. If you're going to actually um, pull off something, you have to know what you're writing about, and the only way to know it is to rewrite it. It was the best bit of advice I could have got. Mm -hmm. And uh, I concentrated on what my mother had told me about the factory. It's not um, documentary. It's it's invented a lot of it, but I mean, what I really wanted to get on, get into my head was the language of the factory, and the language of these women. And all I had to do was close my eyes and let it flow. And that was the first play, and it happened. Patrick guided it into uh, you know a, a sane structure, not overruling it, like giving me my head. But he he really you know. Does A connect with B, but even more important, does A connect with G? Mm. Uh, and I had that kind of spirit of structure. Um, I, I was imbued with his learning. Um, and I went from there. And the fact that I was the first play and, and my mother and aunt came to see it. And uh, <laughs> my favourite image of them is sitting on the CIE bus to Derry underneath the no smoking sign, every one of them with a large <laughs> fag in their hand, merrily smoking, you know, and nobody dared stop them, I can tell you. You're going to read for us now as well, because as well as the factory girls, you also pay homage to your mom and your great aunts in your poem, The Woman With No Shadows. Tell us a little about it, Frank, before you read this poem Well, for there's us. a Strauss opera, The Woman With No Shadow, and I think... Just for badness on my mother's spirit, I'm linking her to an opera by Richard Strauss. <laughs> um, I don't think she would have lasted the pace of this one because it's quite demanding. However, the title is so beautiful. And I come from Annie Shaw and Loxwally, which is the Lake of Shadows. So for me, the woman with no shadows are those who, if you like, have upped and outed from Loxwally and made their mark on the world. So it's about... Um, women who are not defined by what life 
um, is well, the life that they're expected to have. Brilliant. You read that first now. The woman with no shadows. Here as well, Frank. Okay. I'll give I, it to you. Sorry, I sort of had Don't worry. Show. He has his beautiful book of poetry in front of him. You can, I find a knife. You can never find something when you're looking for it. I got it. Oh, well done. The Woman With No Shadows is for two friends of mine, Kieran and Morris. The Woman With No Shadows. They were all born in May. 22nd, if you must know. When asked, that's what they say. The Woman With No Shadows, they never cross red water. Loch Derg is then a no-no. St. Patrick lacks a daughter. These women search the forest to find a lost child, a prince, maybe a beast, turning the wild things mild. They wait as the moon unwinds through the calm of clouds, believing in ties that bind the pockets in a shroud. The women with no shadows, they wander where they please. They bargain with friend and foe the price of rubies. The women with no shadows, Fought like devils in Petersburg, frozen city, frigid, haloed, in the mists of Loch Derg. Do these women wake at night, devouring the dark? Switch on the electric light, let sorrows leave their mark. They drench the sky, they kiss the sea, flowers and maytime grow. They have me as they reared me, the woman with no shadows. Tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Welcome back. I'm here this morning with one of our most popular, revered and respected dramatists, writers and poets, Frank McGuinness. Frank, I suppose the play that really established your reputation as a brilliant writer was Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, which is the story of a Northern Irish regiment in the First World War. I mean, you were reared as a Catholic. What was it that prompted your interest in this predominantly Ulster Protestant experience in the war? Well, my first job was in Coleraine at the University of Ulster and and two major events occurred there. One was I met my lifelong partner, Philip, who was teaching there. And the second was I developed an interest, not merely in the First World War, which I was already interested in, but in the Ulster regiments. And every town in the north of Ireland has a war monument, which I'd never noticed um, until one day I was waiting for a lift. um, And there it was in the centre of of Coleraine. And I was seeing... uh, spent a lot of time in Enniskillen as well. And the two came together. And suddenly it dawned on me, what would it be like if you walked into the, the lecture hall and every young man uh, under the age of 30 was not there? Uh, and that was the click. That was the personal jump to, you know, make your heart go faster. And I decided that that's when I would research what happened to this regiment. It was an extraordinary story, and it was not that well told at the time. People were not interested in the First World War, certainly not in celebrating it or in remembering them with the, 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 the honour that was due to them, particularly in the, nor- uh, particularly in the South. Mm. Um, so that kind of was an incentive to find out more and to start writing the play. I had already written The Factory Girls and I had done another play which hadn't worked. Um, it never was produced. Um, and I was determined this third play, I would write something big and stretching and shocked the living daylights out of myself. And the subject was large enough to do that. It's 
probably my favourite play of yours. I mean, it's hard to say, but there's something incredibly moving about it. Do you do you still would you still love that play yourself? Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, I love all the, all mm. my sons, all my children, all my daughters. <laughs> I love them all actually. But it is the one that um they all die. <laughs> so invariably you um are still darkly touched by them. And I you know, I have to be very careful when they when it's cast, I have a, a habit of identifying the actors with the part. And um, I'm older now, and I, I don't do that, that much, but at the beginning, it was tough to separate them. Um, you know, you felt that they were being sent out to die, and it was mm. excruciatingly difficult. Um, but it's 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 a big subject, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm very glad I've written it. I'm very glad I, I did it. I wrote it. And no matter what else can be said about me, I wrote Sons of Ulster, you know. It's, um, so. it's magnificent. And, you know, as well as writing all the successful plays and poems, you're also known for your adaptations of the works of other writers like Chekhov. And, of course, you won a Tony Award for your adaptation of Ibsen's A Doll's House. Do you find adapting others' works as rewarding as, say, writing your own material? It's a very different um, procedure. It's a very different joy. I mean, it, it was a way of bridging the teaching, which I did all the time that I was writing, up until retiring a couple of years ago. And it was a very, um, if you like, creative form of academic study was to take on, you know, these big, hard plays, these big, tough plays. And, you know, I firmly believe writers plant secrets and their scripts that only other writers can really stumble on. And I took great joy in um, unearthing them when I could find them. But it was also, I mean, it was just for the the discipline and the training. You know, I mean, writing, uh, writing is like a skill. Um, you have mm. to know what you're at. You have to learn what you're at. You have to do your best to, to um, get the most out of your own work as you can possibly get. And the impetus to do that, the example to do that was from working with these great playwrights. Uh, and I took an awful lot from them. I mean, I wrapped them off right, left and centre, but in, you know, the nicest possible way. <laughs> I, I complimented them, you know, when I was necking their wallet. But um, it, it, was a, it was a great challenge to do them. And you also get the chance to work with magnificent actors and directors and designers because they want to place themselves in competition mm. with these parts and these plays. Um, so you got to work with the best people. Um, the Tony Award came from, you know, well, my work, yeah, but also from, you know, Anthony Page and Janet McTeer, lovely Janet, um, and, and Owen Teague. We're all in it, actually, and um, it brings out the best in people. Uh, it brings out the fear in them, and um, people do their best work when they're frightened. When you look back, you said before, you know, you had a lot of fear, you were timid and scared, wee boy, when you were growing up. Do you feel really privileged now that you've got a life that's gone so well for you, that you have become the successful writer? Are you surprised at this 18-year-old from Moncrana who went on to this? Oh, I'm stunned by it. I mean, so stunned that I'm, uh, you know, I'm willing to admit that the fear has never gone away. Um, they could all go be taken from you. Um, there's no such thing as security. And um, everything could elapse, everything could collapse, everything could go. That's uh, the training that I got um, in school. And indeed, you know, you don't, you know, you're, when you grow up with very little, you expect nothing to change. Um, there are opportunities that you have to take and you take them with 
the best face forward and the best mask on. But take off the mask and you'll find that um, you're still quivering inside to a marked extent. You still have no security whatsoever. That It would be impossible for me to, to feel that. You know, I mean, I, I just feel that um, the marks are there. There was a, a wonderful, wonderful song, um, which I really have no right to, but it was called, when I was a young fellow, by, sung by a duo. It's one of the first reggae songs I ever hear called Young, Gifted and Black. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a refrain in that. Um, there are times when I look back and I am haunted by my youth. But there's a great truth you should know. When you're young, gifted and black, your soul's intact. And I would like to hope that that intactness is still there, but the intactness is dependent on being frightened of losing everything and the reality that that could happen. You've been lucky, haven't you, that you met Philip and he's been your life partner for Mm. 44 years? Yes. Yeah. 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 Still hobbling along, as you say. (laughs) (laughs) But I assume that's been a hugely important part of, I don't know, your life's happiness, your life's work. Oh, and it couldn't be the same without him, actually. He's been a tremendous source of strength. Um, and he's uh, he's the best man. I was, and it went beyond luck. You know, if I, if I believed in blessings, I would say I was blessed, but neither two of us do. <laughs> so we'll stick to luck. <laughs> and the secret to your, the longevity of your Love? What do you well, we live apart, is? actually. We've always lived apart. Um, he, um, he lives in Coleraine and I live in, Dun- uh, in Dublin. Um, and we spent a lot of time together, but he's kept his life in Coleraine. He's kept his friendships, kept his interests there, kept his house there. And I think that that is um, vitally important for any relationship surviving, that you respect. Um, the, the respect that there's a certain silence about things. You don't need to know everything. Um, and this is very hard for two people as nosy as we are. And we are desperately nosy. <laughs> but we have learned, you know, when to back off and stop asking, actually. Um, it hasn't been easy. Nothing that lasts that long is easy. Growing old is bloody awful, actually. Just not in terms of a relationship, but in terms of your own body and the rest of it. You're looking but, um, well. Well, I'm battling on, actually. You know, I mean, <laughs> I vow always that I will not turn into one of those amazingly boring gets male and female <laughs> who, when you ask, how are you oh, doing, yeah. they tell you, you know. <laughs> That's out. All their ailments. <laughs> oh, backwards, you know. Um, so I really, if I ever find myself doing that, my friends and indeed Philip are instructed to reach for the, reach for the shovel, you know. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I mean, you could say luck has come into it. Work has come into it as well. Mm. Um, you know, you have to work at things. But I never would be one to dismiss the power of luck. And um, as long as you have it, you'll, you'll do all right. And final word I just want to say to you, which is that many years ago, a sister of mine died, Anne, of cancer when she was 33. You worked with her in the Abbey and you wrote a poem for her, A Woman Untouched. And I was in my mum's yesterday and I noticed it's in her bedroom on a table where she's pictures of Anne. So your work matters an awful lot to many people, Frank. Well, Anne was an extremely special person. I worked with her for a while. I knew her 
well in that we had great joy together as colleagues in the Abbey. She could do her job astonishingly well. That was one of the things that totally endeared me to her. She was one of the most beautiful people I've ever set eyes on and one of the funniest. So what could you do? That combo? How could she not adore her, you know? But she was a, she was a very special woman and I'm glad that your mum has the poem and I'm glad it means so much to her because I know your mum, I've met her a couple of times and she's a great woman. Um, and she's, I understand she is Big Miriam and you're Little Miriam. So That's my correct, love yeah. goes to Big Miriam and, she, <laughs> and we were privileged to know the great Anne. Thank you, Frank. And look, the Dublin Theatre Festival is featuring the world premiere of your new play, Dinner with Groucho. It's at the Civic Theatre in Tala, running from September the 22nd to October the 1st. It's an absolutely brilliant play. Frank McGuinness, it's been a privilege chatting to you this morning. Miriam, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll take a break.